Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, how does Protestantism see itself among the branches of Christendom? Uh, Ken, this is a continuation of a series prompted by an article in Christianity Today earlier this year called, Wait, You're Not Deconstructing? And then that led to this idea of deconstruction leading to deconversions. And you took the opportunity to make a case for uh, mere, being a mere Christian. And perhaps people have not uh, realized that their church experience uh, is not all there is out there. There's 2,000 years of church history to consider. So in that light, we took a look at Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. And now here we are with uh, this podcast. Is that a, a decent summary, or would you say it differently? No, I think you've uh, I think you've said it well, Joe. You know, the more I think about challenges to Christianity, uh, and in the wake of that CT article about uh, deconversion, deconstruction, the more I've come to the conclusion that. Uh, a lot of objections uh, to Christianity can be, I think, effectively challenged if you have a, a basic understanding of, of the history of our faith. And I think increasingly we're moving away from history. I think, I think that's part of kind of the postmodern uh, period in which we're living. And uh, I, I think it's very important to be able to have a, a basic knowledge of, of the history of our faith. And I, uh, I want to pick up on the point you made there, Joe, and, and that is um, lots of Christians, uh, they have a personal relationship with the Lord, uh, but they think of their faith almost exclusively in personal terms. You know, I, I go to this particular church, uh, I have this particular minister, um, you know, this, this is my Christianity. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, people should have uh, dynamic personal relationships. I think, uh, I think other branches of Christendom could benefit from that idea of a, a dynamic personal relationship with the Lord. But when questions come up about the faith, uh, we also have to recognize that this is a 2,000-year-old history and most of the issues we're dealing with today, in one way or another, have been addressed in church history. So here we are in that third branch of Christendom, and I'm hoping that uh, the, these summaries will be helpful to people as they, uh, they give thought about their own convictions before the Lord. Yeah, well, as we did for the other two branches of Christendom, you have a list of questions that we can explore uh, so we're going to get through about five on this podcast and then pick it up again on the next one. Uh, so maybe we can jump right into it, uh, Ken. Th yeah. This will be helpful, by the way, for people who just don't have a whole lot of uh, church history background. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, you're going to uh, summarize a lot of this material, which obviously you can delve into in great depth. But yeah. I think by asking questions... Uh, there's enough there to whet the appetite. So here's the first one. How would Protestantism describe itself? Yeah, I think a, a, a very helpful, um, I think a helpful component in looking at Christendom is coming up with some good reference books. And one of them that I keep recommending is Alistair McGrath's book, Christianity and Introduction. And what I like about that, even though, um, even though McGrath is a Protestant, he is an Anglican, I think he's very fair-minded when he addresses Catholicism, orthodoxy, but this is what he has to say about Protestantism. He says, quote, the term Protestantism is widely used to refer to those churches which trace their historical origins back to the European Reformation of the 16th century. The term is potentially misleading in that most Protestant churches stress their historical and theological continuity with the early church. It must be stressed that the term Protestant 
is not in tension with the idea of being Catholic, close quote. Well, I, I think that's a nice introduction for us that the Reformation, uh, you know, if we go back to the 16th century, we see the emergence slowly and gradually of a distinctive third branch of Protestantism. And of course, uh, many Catholics and Orthodox, uh, their major criticism, one of the criticisms that they have of Protestantism is, you're the new kid on the block. You've only been around since the 16th century, whereas Catholics and Orthodox see themselves much deeper going back uh, right at the at the end of the apostolic era, they're right there in, in their way of thinking. Well, one of the points that it is important, I think, that McGrath makes here is that Protestantism, sure, it, it does begin in Europe in the 16th century, but uh, it detects its roots to be much deeper than that. And, you know, what, what's interesting from my own personal experience, I, um, I grew up a Roman Catholic and I wasn't very devout, but in my teenage years, I started getting serious. I even thought about uh, being a, a priest for a time. Um, and I remember sitting in church um, and listening very carefully and reading through the liturgy, uh, the, the responsorial uh, statements that are, that are in this liturgy, kind of a systematic presentation. Well, later, of course, I, I became a Protestant, and I have been a member of a Lutheran church. I was a member uh, of a Presbyterian and then a Reformed church, and now I'm, a, now I'm a member of an Anglican church. And what I discover in sitting in the pew is I often think back to when I was a young man as a Catholic, and I say, that's the same words that I said in the Catholic church that now I say in an Anglican church, but I said the same thing in a Lutheran church. That is, there is liturgical material that are part of the Protestant Reformation that, that precedes the Protestant Reformation. It goes back to very early Christianity. So um, now let me introduce a individual uh, to you. This is uh, uh, John Henry Newman. John Henry Newman was an Anglican. His dates are 1801 to 1890. Well, he had a major conversion to Catholicism. Uh, in fact, he became John Henry Cardinal Newman. It was one of the it was one of the big conversions, the changes of Christendom in the 19th century, and it and it had a big impact on the Anglicans. Wow, one of our leading thinkers has. Uh, swam the Tiber, if you will. It's gone over to Rome. Um, well, Newman, of course, is known for this quote that some of my Catholic friends are very fond of quoting. Newman said, quote, to be, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. To, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Well, um, I think there's some truth in that. But I also think it misses that point that McGrath is making here and what I've detected even in my own personal experience, and that is that there is a, a Catholicity. I don't mean Catholicism. There is a Catholicity that runs through Protestantism that goes back to, um, you know, the, the ancient world, uh, if you will. Now, another point that I, I want to make as we talk about, try to answer this question, what does it mean? You know, how, how would we describe Protestantism, if you, if you will? I like to talk about what I call the spirit of Protestantism, the spirit of Protestantism. And I have come to this conclusion. I don't think you understand Protestantism unless you come to grips with Martin Luther not Martin Luther King, that's another individual further down the line, but I think if you come to grips with Martin Luther, you'll get, I think, a deeper understanding of what it means to be Protestant, and what I mean by that is that uh, it really does begin with Luther. Uh, you know, Luther was a German uh, living 
in uh, he 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 was born in the uh, in in the uh, uh, boy fifteenth century, uh, and of course he is the leader of the Protestant Reformation, and we'll talk more about that in a little while. But he was a, an interesting person because uh, he got caught in a thunderstorm, and of course you see his Catholicism. Uh, he cries out, Saint Anne's, save me, I'll become a monk. Now, Dave, uh, as a physicist, uh, nature's fury can, can, can make you afraid. Yeah. Uh, and Luther being caught in this, he cried out. And by the way, the Saint Anne, who is Saint Anne? Well, I remember, uh, I remember being Catholic, and according to church tradition, the Virgin Mary's mother was named Anne. Now, one of the reasons I know that is that my wife's middle name is Anne, and all of her sisters have the middle name Anne. Uh, well, that was the that was the Saint Anne that Luther cried out, uh, you know, save me, I'll become a monk. Of course, uh, Luther survived that uh, thunderstorm, and he was true to his word. He became a monk. But then something happened to him, and I, I want to read a little bit of my own description. Can I be bold enough to actually read from my own book? I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, this is what I write about Luther, and I, I want our audience to really kind of take this in, because I don't think you can really get into the Protestant spirit if you don't understand Luther's concern. I say this, Luther became a monk in the hope of finding spiritual truth and peace, but serving as an Augustinian monk and priest made him deeply cognizant of his sinfulness and brokenness as a human being. I think a lot of us can relate to that. No one knows how bad they are until they try really hard to be good. Luther was often insecure about whether a righteous God would truly forgive him. He wondered whether he could ever be assured of salvation by following the church's practices of prayer, confession, penance, fasting, flagellation, and performing of good works. He spent hours in confession, but always wondered if he had forgotten the sin that would stand between him and God. His spiritual insecurity bordered on despair and robbed him of any true peace of mind. He became desperate. And instead of loving God, he actually began to hate him. You know, I, uh, I think that's interesting. Luther joins the monastery, right? He becomes, a, he becomes a monk. And by the way, it's the Augustinian order. But when he's in there, he, uh, he discovers, hey, this is a lot harder than I ever thought. Uh, he's really trying to be morally good. And by the way, later he said if any monk could have... Uh, earned his own salvation, he said, it would have been me. He said, I was all over it. I was really trying to be good. But here's the spirit of Protestantism. How many of us have come to the conclusion that the harder we try to be humble, the harder we try to be pure, the harder we try to be selfless, it seems like those things rise within us, right? And so, uh, you know, instead of, instead of being humble, we become proud. In, instead of becoming pure, uh, we're cognizant of our own personal loss. Um, all of these kinds of things. And Luther felt insecure. And I, I love it that he would go to his father confessor. He, he would go to uh, a man named von Staupitz, another, another German uh, priest, and he would spend hours in the confession, uh, and, I, and I'm sure I could only imagine the von Staupitz saying, "Oh no, not Luther again." Mm. Um, but here, here was a man who was very cognizant of the fact that, you know, growing in the spirit is very difficult. We have narcissistic tendencies. Uh, I think it was. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who said the sign of original sin is, is self-obsession. And could I be very honest with you? There, there are clearly times in my life when I can't stop thinking about me. And I, I gravitate toward that kind of experience. And of course, when I read the Gospels, when I read Scripture, 
I recognize that I need to move beyond me. I need to be concerned about other people. Well, Luther had that battle. And he said that being in the monastery, instead of giving him assurance, he became even more concerned. He started to hate God. And of course, this led to von Staupitz saying to him, uh, you know, Luther, I, I think you ought to go study scripture. I think scripture will, will help you work through all of this guilt and, and frustration that you have. And that's what Luther did. And that was a dangerous thing to do. You know, mm. reading the Bible is a dangerous thing. And this <laughs> became dangerous uh, really for all of Western civilization because Luther starts studying the book of Romans. He starts studying the, the book of Galatians and he began to detect, hey, there is a central theme running through uh, particularly Paul's writings, but in the gospel itself that we are saved not by doing good works, not a combination of God doing things and, you know, us doing our part, but that we're saved by grace and that it comes through faith. And so the, the doctrine of justification by faith uh, becomes uh, the, you know, the watchword of the Reformation, if you will. And you know, one of the things I point out in my chapter on Luther in my book, uh, Classic Christian Thinkers, is one of the recent popes, this is Benedict XVI, so this is, this is Pope Emeritus, this is the German Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, who stepped down. Uh, when he was Pope, he went to Germany, of course he would go, because that's where he was born, he was born in Bavaria, well, he spoke to the German Lutheran churches while he was there, trying to kind of build some kind of rapprochement. And uh, Benedict XVI said to the German Lutherans, he said, you know, Luther's questions should be all of our question. Where do we stand with God? Where do we stand with God? And that, I think, is right at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. How can I, as a sinner, how can I, uh, even as a believer in God, even as a follower of Christ, I still struggle with my sin? How can God be, how can I be found acceptable to God when um, my life is still influenced by sin? I think that's Luther's question. And, and for many people who have kind of wrestled with that, I think they find the Protestant Reformation to be very powerful. Uh, and, you know, so in many ways, that is, I think, the spirit of Protestantism. So, uh, you know, I've had people come to me who uh, were contemplating changes, branch, changing branches of Christendom. I've had, uh, I've had Catholic, I've seen Catholics become Protestants. I've seen Protestants become Orthodox. You know, there are, there are people who draw different conclusions about where do I fit within Christendom. Uh, and those are, those are difficult times often. You know, people are searching. We're kind of back to C.S. Lewis in the preface of Mere Christianity saying, you know, Christianity is like a mansion and we're out in the, in the walkway and we're trying the different doors of the denominations of Christendom. Hey, where do I fit in all of this kind of thing? Well, I have told people um, who have thought about giving up Protestantism. Uh, and I, I remember one of my friends who was a, a big name uh, evangelical leader. And he told me, Ken, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to swim the Tiber. I'm going to swim the, the river over to Rome. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, how much have you read of Luther? Have you come to grips with Luther? And uh, he said, you know, I haven't really read much of Luther. I've read Thomas Aquinas. I've read Augustine. And of course, those are dangerous authors to read, by the way. They, you know, you, you kind of naturally read Thomas Aquinas or you read Augustine and you're impressed by the their intellectual wisdom, their spiritual insight, their knowledge of scripture. And then there's a question out there. Well, if, if the two of them were Catholic, 
maybe I should be Catholic. Well, uh, I think if you want to understand uh, Protestantism, you, you kind of come to grips with uh, Luther. Uh, there is a book that I recommend, and in fact, I offer a review of it in my chapter on Luther in Classic Christian Thinkers. Uh, in, the book is entitled, Here I Stand, The Life of Martin Luther. And I'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. But Joe, let me turn it back to you for any questions or... Yeah, well, uh, thanks for, for that uh, historical overview. Let's continue with uh, history. How did Protestantism arise uh, after Luther? And what would be the approximate uh, dates uh, that we're talking about? Yeah, very good. Um, we might say that 1517 is the birth of Protestantism. That's mm -hmm. the year that uh, Luther nailed his 95 theses. I mean, after all, Luther became a theologian. He became a scholar. Uh, and the way scholars would, uh, you know, introduce challenges and ideas is they might write out uh, a series of theological theses and pound them on the church door. Uh, Witten, Wittenberg, if you will, was an was a intellectual city. It was a college city. So Luther nailed his 95 theses, and and I don't think he was aware that that was the beginning of the Reformation, but it, but it certainly was. So the Reformation is a movement that begins in Northern Europe, uh, early part of the 16th century. The word uh, Protestant comes from the word protest. Uh, Luther, without knowing uh, all of the implications of his act, was in many ways protesting particular areas of Catholic doctrine and Catholic practice. Indulgences, for example, was something that, you know, that really troubled him. It seemed to him he'd gone out and he'd heard, uh, uh, you know, this one of these preachers about the sale of indulgences, Tetzel. And Tetzel was a fundraiser uh, and oftentimes uh, fundraisers come up with a jingle. Well, the jingle that Tetzel had in order to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral, now that's a rebuilding project. You're going to need a lot of money for that. Well, Tetzel would say, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. So if you give a donation to the church, you might get your uncle Harry out of Purgatory. Well, Luther perceived this as as being a very crass, uh, essentially the idea of selling salvation. And Luther became increasingly aware that he thought that the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was corrupt. And these were the kind of things that motivated him. Now, it's important as we talk about the Protestant Reformation to realize we're, we are talking about a generational event. I mean, Two of the top Protestant leaders would be Luther. His date's 1483 to 1546. He's the, he is the man that leads the Protestant Reformation, but he's in Germany. In uh, Switzerland, you have Ehrlich Zwingli. Um, and so they would be kind of the first generation reformers. But later, somebody by the name of John Calvin's going to come along, 1509 to 1564. He comes out of France. Um, and of course, what's interesting is Calvin is a second generation reformer. Calvin and Luther never met. Uh, there, there's only the story that Luther saw a track that Calvin wrote. And uh, the comment was, that's written by a first-rate theological mind. It'd be, it, I think it would have been interesting if I could rewrite history, I might have Calvin and Luther meet and talk about Protestantism uh, instead of uh, Luther and Zwingli meetings. So you have multi-generations. Another leading Protestant thinker would be John Knox. He's from Scotland. He's a second generation reformer. So this is happening over decades, uh, if you will. Uh, to talk a bit, a little bit more about uh, what I might call the ethos, and I'm going to come back to this again. Protestants have their series of solas, right, in the Latin, S-O-L-A, sola scriptura. 
Scripture as the supreme authority, and instead of the Catholic Church with its magisterium, Sola Scriptura would argue that Scripture is the final court of appeals. Um, that that Scripture is where you would appeal to in terms of what you believe and how you should live. Uh, sola gratia, uh, salvation by grace alone. Sola fide you're justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, solus Christus, through Christ alone. And of course, maybe a summary of, of this Protestant way of thinking, sola Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Instead of salvation being a mixture of human works and divine grace, uh, salvation is the gift of God. And, and only God is to be glorified by that. Now, we'll come back to some of these solas um, because they're very important. Uh, here is kind of the critical context, uh, theologically speaking. Mm -hmm. But I think we also need to talk a little bit about the two different parts of the Reformation. Uh, those two parts of the Reformation are called the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation. The Magisterial Reformation would include the early Protestants, uh, Lutherans, Reformed Presbyterians, Anglicans. The Radical Reformation is represented by the group of Christians called the Anabaptists. Now, that's going to, that's going to move forward and have, you know, a lot of different uh, ideas coming forward. But that's kind of a summary, Joe, if you will, of where Protestantism begins. Okay. Well, you, you kind of answered the next question about the two parts of the Reformation, but maybe we can, uh, some people may not be aware of that term radical Reformation. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, if we, if we focus on the Reformation, and, and again, we talk about these two spheres of it, uh, these two parts of it, uh, the Magisterial Reformation would have been made up of the Lutherans, the Reformed, and the Anglican, and essentially it's called Magisterial because these Protestants appealed to the political magistrates. Luther, Calvin, uh, the English Reformation, they appealed to the magistrates. They believed that uh, Christianity had to be lived out in accord uh, with the political leaders. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, you have, you have individuals in the Radical Reformation, and they rejected that idea. They repudiated any secular political authorities. Now, I want to stop and simply say this. Um, it's very tempting for me, I think, to think of the Protestant Reformation almost exclusively in, in terms of theological ideas. But I think the, the deeper you look at this, uh, there's only one way Luther and Calvin and Zwingli could have survived. And that is that there were magistrates, there were kings and princes and leaders of various Protestant countries that were sympathetic to them. And, and so the idea of how influential was economics and politics in terms of the success of the Reformation. I mean, Luther at one time was, uh, was under, uh, you know, suspension by the Catholic Church, and he had to hide uh, to avoid uh, being captured and potentially put on trial and put to death. Well, the, the magisterial reformers, uh, again, people like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, they thought that uh, the church and the government needed to work their proper roles together, kind of the two kingdoms, if you will. The Radical Reformation said no, and he, here are some of the leaders of the Radical Reformation. Thomas Munster, another German, Andres Karlstadt, Conrad Grebel, they, they were part of this reformation that said, look, uh, politics and economics is what got us into trouble to begin with. And, you know, as you think about that, um, in some respects, I think the reformation is a reaction on the part of political and economic authorities who were bitter against 
the Roman Catholic Church. They, they saw the Catholic Church as having too much economic and political authority. So while I am tempted to think in terms of pure ideas, you know, I wonder if Luther and Calvin would have ever made it at all had they not had though that relationship with, with the magistrates. Hmm. So a little kind of economic political side to all of this. Yeah, you just a, kind of an aside, and I appreciate your comments on this. Dave might be thinking the same thing I am, that uh, a, lot, a lot of the people who settled in America uh, way back uh, were fleeing some of that uh, political uh, and religious turmoil in the hopes of getting something started here where they were free to worship as they please. I don't know if you want to comment on that, on separating church and state, if you will, uh, whether that idea was, was at all present back then. It certainly was. And uh, there, are, there are many historians who would say it's hard to conceive of the founding of America apart from the Protestant Reformation. But what you see within the early colonies of America is you have uh, both the magisterial and the radical reformation there. Uh, you have people that are a bit more on the side of being supportive of, of politics and government, but you also have people that are, you know, they feel pushed around by European authorities, by church authorities. So part of this reformation is, in fact, a tension uh, in all of that. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that I think needs to be understood is that somebody like a John Calvin, who I usually have to defend John Calvin uh, on social media or anywhere, uh, he is he is in my mind the most controversial figure within church history. I think, in some respects, misunderstood, but. Um, there have been people who have said that uh, where people don't appreciate Calvin is that his theological ideas led to the change uh, in the liberty of the individual and economic issues. I mean, prior to the Reformation, the idea that you would loan money with interest was frowned upon. And so uh, Protestantism in many ways led to uh, a increase in the idea of individual liberties and, uh, you know, a free market enterprise, if you will. Uh, so these are things that then influence uh, America. Uh, All right. Yeah. How about some uh, distinctives of the uh, Radical Reformation? Now, a lot of people may not be as familiar with the Radical Reformation as they are with the Magisterial Reformation. Again, the Magisterial, you have these big names, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. The Radical Reformation would share certain things in common with the Magisterial Reformation. The Radical Reformers, they rejected indulgences. They rejected the sacramentalism of the Catholic Church. Remember, the Catholic Church has seven sacraments both the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation reduced them to two. Uh, and of course, uh, the Radical Reformation, they're no longer sacraments. They're, they are something other than that. The Radical Reformers also affirmed biblical authority. They believed very strongly in the idea of the priesthood of all believers. But the Radical Reformers quickly became critics of the Magisterial Reformers. They didn't think the Magisterial Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they didn't think they had gone far enough. In fact, the Radical Reformation at times referred to the Protestants, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, as Protestant popes. Hmm. So they didn't think the Reformation had gone nearly far enough. Uh, and here's what, uh, here's what McGrath says about the biblical ideas of the Radical Reformation, uh, again, from his book, Christianity and Introduction. McGrath writes, quote, in the hands of such radical thinkers, the sola scriptura principle would be radicalized. Reformed Christians would only believe and practice those things explicitly taught in scripture, close quote. Well, think about that. Uh, you should only believe and practice those things that you exp are explicitly taught in Scripture. 
well, is the Trinity explicitly taught in Scripture? Uh, there are things that you might say, well, uh, these are foundational principles, but they're not necessarily explicitly or formally taught. Now, what, what other kinds of things do you get in the Radical Reformation? Here are some of the distinctives, and I'm relying upon another theologian, Robert C. Walton, in his chart book on church history. It's in, the title is Chronological and Background Charts of Church History. Very valuable book to have in your library. But here are, uh, here are two distinct, distinctives of the Radical Reformation. One, of course, as we've already seen, that they repudiated church-state ties. So they're radical or, or extreme in rejecting the political authorities of the time. Now, that's going to cost them. They're going to suffer because of that. Probably just as Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli benefited from being friendly with the magistrates, the radical reformers suffered significantly because they didn't build ties to them. Now, of course, you can raise the question, who was being more spiritual in all of that? But here, here are some of the uh, other ideas. Um, radical reformers initially were called Anabaptists. The term means a rebaptizer. Uh, so the, the Anabaptists, the radical reformers, they insisted that uh, the only people who were legitimate candidates for baptism uh, were people who could make a public profession of faith. Now, again, thinking about the magisterial reformers, in the Lutheran church, you have infant baptism. In the reformed and Anglican churches, you have infant baptism. In the Presbyterian church, you have infant baptism. So one of the central ideas that we see coming in the Radical Reformation is uh, the Catholics believed in infant baptism. So there is this criticism. Now, here's a, here's a kind of a grocery list of things that are associated uh, with the Anabaptist movement, the Radical Reformation. They viewed church uh, as a voluntary association of committed believers. They accepted pacifism. Um, that's a that's kind of a rare and extreme position within Christendom. Most groups, Catholic, Orthodox, magisterial reformers have accepted more just war theory, but the early radical reformers accepted pacifism. Uh, they practiced community of goods, sharing things in common, as they perceived the early church to do. They promoted religious toleration, and they maintained the simplicity of, of dress and lifestyle. Uh, so again, the idea here is these Anabaptists, they're opposed to the Catholic Church, but they think the Protestant reformers, the, the magisterial reformation, uh, have have not gone far enough, and this led to a, a uh, extended persecution of the radical reformers. Mm. Uh, Catholics were critical of them. The magisterial Protestants were critical of them. So who are we talking about? Who are the emerging groups out of the Anabaptist movement? Uh, well, it would include the Church of the Brethren, the Hutterites, the Mennonites, and the Amish. Mm. And you see that extension even forward. These are, these are people who are very anti-war. They're anti-killing. Uh, they are very critical of kind of a, a, mag a magisterial or a sacramental view. So that gives you a little bit of where the Radical Reformation is going. Now, Joe, I'm going to say one word, and we can pick this up later if you'd like. I, of course, think we now have a fourth branch of Christendom. Mm-hmm. That fourth branch of Christendom, to some degree, I think, is birthed in out of the Radical Reformation. Um, I'm not sure the Protestants at the time realized uh, the differences, even within Protestantism. But I'll yeah. stop there and see if you have a question or two. Yeah, I do. Dave, do you have a question? Uh, go ahead. Just Yeah. Um, the question before we move on to Protestant Protestantism's size is where do groups like uh, that are prominent today, very large, uh, like Baptists and Methodists, uh, Nazarenes and so on, 
fit? Were they further divisions among the magisterial Protestants or, or what, where, did, where did they emerge? Yeah, from where? very good question. Well, um, actually the, uh, the Methodists and the Nazarenes come out of Anglicanism. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, some of the other groups uh, come out of the Reformed. So they're, think of a tree, you've got the branches, right? And the branches start to divide to some degree. Uh, if you think about the Baptist, of course, in some respect, the Baptists are going to accept more of a magisterial reformation, but not when it comes to baptism. I mean, central to the Baptist idea is the only person who is a legitimate candidate for baptism is a person who can stand up in the midst of the congregation and say, I believe these things and I make a public profession of faith. So again, some of the radical reformers, they thought, um, well, you know, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, uh, the Anglicans, they're, they're still Romanists. They're still adopting this kind of sacramentalism. But uh, it, churches that emerged later, Joe, um, Methodist, Nazarene, they would come out of uh, debates that are happening in England prior to the birth of America. So you would see the you would see kind of the development of more of a Wesleyan or Arminian form of uh, Protestant thinking. A lot of these groups also come out of sort of revivals. It seems like the Methodists, for instance, in early America, there was you know tremendous revivals in the east uh, side of our country. And uh, it seemed like, you know, with the preaching and teaching of Wesley, and that sort of became kind of a denomination, as it were, all by itself. Well, well, you, have, you have what we call the first great awakening and then the second great awakening. So this is in the colonial period. This is prior to America becoming a nation. That first great awakening um, Jonathan Edwards would be one of the leaders. That first Great Awakening, Dave, that had more of kind of a Reformed uh, Presbyterian Calvinistic flavor. The second Great Awakening was more of a Wesleyan or okay, okay. But you're you're exactly right. The idea of revivalism that you would have revival meetings. And you would call upon people in the church. Maybe there, maybe there are people who are not authentically Christian, who have been baptized, kind of grown up in the church. But you might also make an appeal to people outside of Christian circles. And so you have these revival movements that deeply influence, uh, you know, the early stages of America. Uh, and again, that. That is an interesting idea. I mean, th these are topics, by the way, to our listeners. These are some of the things we've talked about at lunch over the years. Mm -hmm. How do people become Christian? My contention is most people become Christians because they're baptized in into they're baptized as infants into families that are Christian. Um, now, of course, in our time, you know, you think of somebody like Billy Graham. I mean. Billy Graham, a Southern Baptist, spoke to millions of people all over the world. I, 1983, I went to uh, Anaheim Stadium where the where the Angels play. These are the baseball Angels, Dave, not the right, right. <laughs> um, but I remember going to the stadium and hearing Billy Graham preach, and I was impressed. I was impressed with his clarity. I was impressed with his sincerity. Uh, you know, then there have, have been others uh, not far from where I live, Greg Laurie, uh, who was an associate of Chuck Smith that kind of came out of the Jesus people. Uh, you know, uh, Harvest Crusade, uh, you can go to Dodger Stadium, Angel Stadium, various places around the country and hear this kind of revival type of preaching. Uh, and so it, to some respects, you see kind of divisions within Christendom. You start to see you know, the different directions. And I think to some degree, the non-denominationalism that will come uh, 
and and growth in terms of kind of Pentecostalism and charismatic spirituality, we'll see kind of again uh, developing out of these kind of Protestant roots, if you will. Yeah. Uh, another question that comes to mind is um, in relation to, let's say, what we see today in the Western world, particularly America, where uh, evangelicalism seems to be uh, among the most prominent, if not the most prominent uh, uh, way that Christianity is understood. Um, it seems that all these groups that you've talked about, Ken, correct me if I'm mistaken, uh, probably still held to creeds like the Apostles' Creed, and they all had confessions or catechisms uh, of faith. Um, is that characteristic of a lot of these groups? I think it is fair to say that the even in the Radical Reformation, you have uh, creedal statements, but again, they're somewhat critical of those ideas. Uh, in the you know the idea that you would uh, you're repeating other people's words. Why don't you stand up and say what's in your heart? So uh, some of the some of the denominations that will be birthed out of the Radical Reformation still have uh, an affirmation of let's say the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of you know the universal uh, Christian creed of in Western civilization and. Western Christendom, um, but they would probably be less tied to kind of uh, formal confessional ideas. Uh, it'd be a bit more magisterial, at least in, in, in my way of thinking. Okay, very good. All right, how large is Protestantism today? Okay, here I'm going to give you some statistics that come from a 2017 Pew report. By the way, I, I really recommend that our listeners, uh, particularly if you're on social media, to pick up Pew reports. I think they do a pretty good job of trying to get to the facts, and I think they're pretty fair to religious people. Um, you know, sometimes uh, you have the problem of ABC, anything but Christianity, but I think the Pew tries to look at uh, the data and let it speak for itself. Not perfect, but again, 2017 Pew report. Well, uh, according to that report, there are about 850 million Protestants worldwide. That would mean roughly that just under 40% of Christendom would be Protestant. If you think of the three branches, if you have 37% Protestant, 50% Catholic, Orthodox, 12%, so Protestantism would be the second largest branch. Um, uh, Orthodoxy would be the third branch. And, and of course, uh, from 2017, the numbers of US Protestants are in decline. Now, that's largely mainline Protestants, less so with evangelicals, but it is true, uh, even of evangelicals. And Joe, I, I think that's worthy of uh, a little discussion uh, of mainline and evangelical. But let me give you a few more statistics here. Uh, the number of evangelical Protestants in Latin America has risen sharply. Now, that's a big deal, because if you think of uh, Latin America, if you think uh, about, um, you know, Central America, uh, South America, th this is a heavy, heavy Catholic continent. Uh, the numbers of Catholics there 100, 200 years ago would be solidly uh, Roman Catholic. There's an increasing number of uh, Latin American people who have embraced an evangelical Protestant faith. And the numbers of Pentecostals and Charismatics has, has risen significantly. Now, now again, I'm going to be that controversial idea who actually believes we may be seeing a fourth branch of Christendom. I think a lot of this is moving in that direction. I mean, uh, in the late 1970s, I was part of a Catholic church, Holy Family Catholic Church in a little city uh, called Artesia, uh, one of the suburbs of Los Angeles. And uh, I would go to church and we had a charismatic renewal movement. So some of us would uh, go to the charismatic masses. We would meet for prayer meetings. 
where we were encouraged to read scripture. Uh, the charismatic movement had a big influence in the Catholic Church. I think a very positive influence in the Catholic Church. I think positive in a couple ways. Uh, introducing Catholics to be students of, of scripture in ways they, they hadn't been before. And I, I think also to, to see their faith in more personal terms. It, there's a very strong temptation, I think, as a Catholic to think that the sacraments do all the work. You know, you show up for Mass, you know, you, you, your parents baptize you, you show up for Mass, you go to confession, you receive the Eucharist. Uh, when you get close to death, you receive the last rites, and the sacramental system will, will keep you uh, solidly in the faith. If you step outside by committing mortal sin, then you go to the sacrament of reconciliation, which is confession. But there is a tendency, I think, and I, I think it's not just true of Catholicism. I think it's possibly true of any kind of uh, sacramental uh, kind of uh, uh, in a, you know, a, an official type of church to kind of forget about the personal element. Um, you know, when I got up out of bed this morning, the first thing was I was began talking to the Lord. Lord, this is the beginning of my day. What do you, what do you have for me today? And um, uh, you know, part of my early morning experience is uh, my time of confession. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I don't want to give you too many details here, but, you know, just as when you take a shower and the hot water and the soap cleanses your body, I say, Lord, use your Holy Spirit to cleanse my soul. I have a personal relationship with God. I think in some respects the charismatic experience has been helpful. Uh, now, of course, you're going to have uh, you're going to have particular Pentecostal groups that will come along later. Uh, again, they will they will be moving out of Methodism uh, and and those particular churches. But you know, the Assemblies of God, the Foursquare, uh, those become large churches. And in fact, in America, probably the two largest groups of Protestantism would be first the Southern Baptist and then later uh, maybe the Pentecostals. And worldwide, Pentecostalism is growing significantly. Mm. So now let me say something, if I can, uh, about this idea of, of two types of Protestantism. We talked about two branches of the Reformation or two types of uh, the Reformation, but I want to distinguish mainline Protestantism from what I'm going to call evangelical Protestantism, and there's a world of difference. I mean, remember that, um, remember that the Bible is the most scrutinized book in history. I, I was watching a debate just yesterday um, on, uh, on uh, my computer. Uh, I went on the web, and I, I noticed that Bart Ehrman was debating Peter J. Williams, who is a professor of biblical scholarship at Cambridge. And I thought, wow, this was on the Justin Brierley show, The Unbelievable Show. I hope that our listeners know about that. Uh, it's a show where Justin brings on um, Orthodox committed Christians to debate skeptics. I've been on the program a number of times. Hugh, Fuzz, other people here at RTB have as well. But, uh, you know, as I, as I was thinking about uh, Bart Ehrman, who was at one time a very conservative Christian, who lost his faith, no longer believes that the Gospels are credible sources in communicating the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and of course, I thought Williams did a pretty credible job showing how the Gospels uh, are, are worthy of our confidence. But the thing that popped in my mind was this, uh, the Bible is the most scrutinized book in the history of the world. Uh, these manuscripts, uh, these books that are part of your Bible, if you're Catholic, you have a few more books in the Old Testament than your Protestant friends do. But if you look at these 39 books that are in the Protestant King James Bible, uh, these are the most scrutinized books ever. Um, and in my opinion, they still haven't been overturned. Uh, people have been for centuries. So 
thinking about the Protestant Reformation taking place in the 16th century, the 1500s, 1517, the birthday of the Protestant Reformation, if you think over the last 300 years, so in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, bringing us up to the 21st century, you've had the growth of biblical criticism. You've had a liberal theological system, a progressive Christianity. So, uh, you know, the seminaries at some of the elite Ivy League schools were started basically by conservative Christians. I've read that Harvard University kind of came out of a Bible study, uh, an amazing thing. Well, Harvard and Princeton and Yale, they have their own divinity schools. Well, mainline Christianity, if you can call it Christianity, it began to move away from the idea that the Bible is the trusted word of God. They, they rejected Trinitarianism. They have adopted Unitarianism. They reject the idea that Jesus's death is the definitive way that people can come to God. So mainline uh, Protestant thinking, and it's influenced all of the major denominations. You've got liberal Lutherans, you've got liberal Presbyterians, you've got liberal Reformed, you've got liberal Methodists. It's influenced all of the groups. And ma so mainline Protestantism is, in my opinion, um, not Orthodox and is not Christianity. Um, it's basically, as Walter Martin used to say, you know, the, the brotherhood of man and, and uh, you know, the neighborhood of Brooklyn, if you will. It's, it's just kind of a, a social kind of, kind of component. Now, evangelicals, that's a type of Protestantism that has a continuing influence. And so many, many times, Joe and Dave, when, when the word evangelical is being used, now I'm going to make a case that I think it's a tragedy that the word evangelical has largely become hard to define. It's hard to say, it's hard to actually say, here's what evangelicals believe. But um, even though I think it's lost its flavor when I was growing up and when I was first in college, uh, the word evangelical had a deep connection to the Protestant Reformation. It involved things like the authority of scripture, salvation by grace, a commitment to a new life in Christ. I think a lot of that has changed. So that's kind of, that's kind of differentiating the, uh, you know, the mainline churches from these more evangelical Protestant churches. You know, I read an article uh, or a blog, I think uh, a few years ago, uh, since you mentioned mainline uh, denominations uh, not being, uh, uh, not believing in the word of God, um, that there's a movement afoot in Methodism, Ken, and you probably know this better than I do, to retrieve that um, and to, you know, come back to orthodoxy. So uh, there are encouraging signs, you might say, if, if you can look around and find them. Well, there, there certainly are. In, in fact, one example that I'll mention, and I want to encourage our listeners to consider it, uh, Tom Oden, O-D-E-N, he was a Methodist theologian. He started out kind of ultra-liberal. Uh, he was uh, an associate of Rudolf Bultmann, which was kind of a radical uh, mainline you know, liberal church. Well, Odin began in that kind of uh, fringe liberal theology, and uh, the Lord changed him. He came back to Christian orthodoxy. He came back to a, a believing the Bible, believing in the Trinity, affirming, and in fact, began developing the idea that, you know, we need to go back to uh, an, an ancient form of Christianity. Um, so, it happens. Now, usually it's people start off theologically conservative and move progressive, but there are people who are saying, look, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm Reformed, I'm Lutheran, uh, I want real Christianity, I don't want, you know, kind of a politicized uh, form of religion. Um, now, again, a lot of this has to do with uh, people started having higher critical views of the Bible. 
essentially telling us we can't just open up the Gospels and take it word for word as if it's come from the Holy Spirit. You know, that these are stories and all religions have oral tradition and they've been mixed with ideas and everybody knows the supernatural can't happen. So that's really kind of the backdrop of, of a lot of this. Um, when people begin to question the truth of the Bible, they're ultimately going to conclude that Christianity can't be trusted. Isn't it in a way coming away from the idea of the Bible as a revelation rather than just a, a book describing people's opinions about theology and God? Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea that you find uh, in ancient Judaism and the idea you find in uh, the emergence of Christianity in the first century is that God has revealed himself. He's made himself known. You know, he's done it generally in nature and in conscience, but he's done it specifically uh, in Yahweh's interactions with the Hebrews in the Old Testament and then in an extraordinary way, God has become man in Jesus Christ, that God has walked the earth. Uh, he is uh, both God and man. So you have the incarnation, but what comes out of that is, of course, the inscripturation. And so you have the Hebrew writings, you have the Greek New Testament. These are the words of God. This is a revelation from God. And in many respects, in our more progressive centuries, over the last 300 years, all these kinds of things have been have been questioned. All right. I, that's one of the things that I've observed in my own involvement in teaching scripture and inter interacting with other Christians is that they tend not to look at the Bible as this revelation, but as a, a book that, well, it's the influence of all the criticism that occurs today all these critical ideas, historical criticism. Well, you've already made called attention to this earlier, but I, I just find that emphasizing in, in our teaching that, that as a Christian, I accept the scripture as God's revealing himself. And I need to look at it that way and, and give it that kind of authority in my life. And I, I think what's interesting, you know, as we think about these ideas is there have been many people who have devoted their life to try to undermine the idea that the Bible is a revelation. It's just one more religious myth. Yes. But the, the reality is uh, there are still millions of people on the face of planet Earth today who actually believe the miracles of the Bible, who believe Jesus was risen from the dead, that believe God's word is really a revelation from God. And, you know, I, uh, I've, uh, I've studied textual criticism and I've watched the different interpretations, uh, people questioning the supernatural. And I think the Bible is still standing after all of this warfare that's gone on after all of these attempts to try to undermine it, it's still standing. And I think the only reason for that is the Holy Spirit. It, it is the words that come, come inspired to us from God's Holy Spirit. All right. Good stuff. Well, there's more to say, and we're going to pick it up on the next podcast. Can some more of the distinctives of Protestantism and the relation between the three branches. So, you have more to explain, and we'll look forward to it. Uh, I learned uh, some things on this podcast, and I sure hope our listeners have as well. It's kind of good to listen to a podcast, and then you often compliment it by suggesting books. If, if anybody's like me, you like both. You know, sometimes you yeah. want to listen to something, you can't pick up a book because you're on the go or whatever, uh, but then you get a book to, to read as well. I know you've been talking about the... Um, Alistair McGrath book. Would, be, would that be one we can uh, recommend? Yes, yes definitely. Um, uh, he has a book on a large volume, Christianity and Introduction. Very, very valuable. I, I think McGrath is, uh, well, he, he's one of the great historians of Christianity uh, at the University of Oxford. And so he has very solid credentials. There are other books, if I could recommend 
you might want to consider reading uh, classic Christian thinkers. I have chapters uh, on both Luther and Calvin. And in fact, I touch upon some of the points we've talked about. So mm. the reason I wrote that book is to kind of give, uh, you know, Christians who are looking, uh, you know, I'd like to study church history. I'd like to study historical theology, but I don't know where to begin. I feel intimidated. Some of these books are large and well, my book is intended to kind of give you a helping hand. So I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people will uh, read those chapters on uh, particularly Luther, but Calvin as well. Yeah, uh, I'll certainly give it a hearty endorsement. Uh, I edited the book. I was part of an yeah. editorial team. And I remember uh, when I was reading your chapters, it's like, wow, this is great because I had heard these names before, some of them but really didn't know much about them, but you get them, you get their key ideas and their, their life, you know, in summary form and it's great. And then you get directed to other places to go after that. You, you talk about nine of them in this book, classic Christian thinkers. And I know people have been pushing you to, to do a, like a sequel or, you know, nine more or whatever, but anyway, the nine you chose were fantastic. So we recommend that book. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Uh, let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore case samples. In fact, Ken, uh, let me read a couple of comments that uh, have come in. Here's one. Uh, I guess people have uh, recently come across your book that you wrote 30 years ago. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of one of your books, here's a kind note, Ken. Uh, this week, 30 years late, I read The Cult of the Virgin, how deeply honest to allow a critic like the Jesuit scholar Mitch Pacwa to have a space in your book to respond. Thank you for your careful and informative work, Irk Ashby. Mm. And then here's uh, one more. Ken, thanks for your podcast on Thomas Aquinas. I was encouraged and will read more from and about him, James Greer. So that's encouraging to hear those notes. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. If you go to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, you'll see the Reasons to Believe podcast, and you can subscribe and get an episode delivered to you each week. All right. Thanks again for listening. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogsad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.